Well, hey, it's great to be with you again, and let me encourage you to grab your Bibles. We are in the book of Philippians and carrying on uh, with that study. Uh, But let me ask you to think back in your life to a time when somebody came alongside of you, maybe laid their hand on your shoulder, had a conversation, and said, you know what? I see some things in you. Maybe things that you yourself didn't even see, and they came alongside to encourage you, to challenge you, to bless you. Have you ever considered this certain aspect of your life? Of course, moms and dads do this all the time, but there's something about an outside voice in the life of a child or a a young adult. Uh, My folks have to say these things. After all, I am their kid. They've got to be nice to me. But this stranger, this teacher, this coach, my boss, when they say that they see something in me, my ears perk up. I remember a couple times uh, early in my life, uh, my sophomore year of high school, my Spanish teacher, for whatever reason, uh, pulled me aside after class one day and asked me this question, have you ever considered student leadership? Because I think you've got what it takes. Uh, now, I never did go into student leadership, I didn't have the opportunities, but it intrigued me. I remember as a 16-year-old, our church back in the old days still had Sunday evening services, and once a month, the youth got to take charge of the evening service. And so as a 16-year-old, I preached my very first sermon. I think it was like eight minutes long. And I remember this older woman came up to me after that service and laid her hand on my shoulder and looked up at me and said, if you don't become a preacher, you have missed God's calling. Now, whether she was right or wrong in saying those words, that conversation stuck with me over the years. I think you know this inherently, that the best leaders are concerned for the welfare and the benefit of their followers. That's what makes them good leaders. The best leaders can see beneath the surface and they see the potential that might be laying there dormant or even hidden. Uh, I'm sure you have heard the phrase, uh, a diamond in the rough. Uh, that you look at a person and you see that underneath those rough edges, underneath some of their personality quirks and characteristics, that there is potential that God has put within them. And if we can just help them knock off those rough edges, that they have great potential for the glory of God. For years, I had a painting, a print of a painting hanging in my office. It's by Rene Magritte. It's called Clairvoyance. And if you look carefully at the photo, it'll take a little bit of time to have it sink in. He is painting a bird, but he is looking at an egg. Painting the bird, but looking at the egg. And so as he looks at that egg, he sees the potential of what is within and is painting what he sees. Now, there's no question that the Apostle Paul had this kind of relationship with hundreds of people, maybe maybe even thousands of people. As he traveled from city to city, his spiritual eyes and ears, his his spiritual antenna was constantly up. What is God doing? Who is God drawing to himself? And as he watched and he listened for those in whom God was working, he constantly traveled with an entourage of younger leaders around him. And he was constantly writing to encourage, to stir up to train, equip, in some cases to rebuke the church. I want to see you progress. I I see the potential that God has placed within you. So a couple weeks ago, as we looked at the opening of this particular letter, 
uh, we saw his prayer and we commented about his over-the-top affection and love, his shepherd's heart that was coming through. And today we hear his rejoicing that he is indeed going to get to see them again and his rejoicing in knowing that they are moving forward in their faith, that they are progressing in the faith. So we're jumping into a middle of a paragraph, really, a paragraph that we started last weekend. Verses 12 to 30 is one long theme. And last week, Paul was basically saying, I'm rejoicing, even though I'm here under house arrest in Rome, I'm rejoicing because the gospel continues to advance. In this text, we see him saying, I'm rejoicing because I'm coming to see you. I'm rejoicing because the gospel is advancing and I'm rejoicing because I'm coming to see you and I'm going to get to see that the gospel's advancing in your life. I want to read these uh, 12 or 13 verses, so follow along if you've got your Bibles. Philippians 1, uh, beginning in the middle of verse 18, we're jumping into that thought, I rejoice because the gospel's advancing is where he ended. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, uh, which shall I choose? I, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. I'm rejoicing. I'm rejoicing because even though I'm in prison, the gospel is advancing and I am rejoicing because I know the gospel's advancing in your life. Nothing causes me more joy than to know that you are progressing in your joy and in your faith. And so in the time that we've got together this weekend, I want to look at this text from two angles. Uh, Paul's challenge to these people and some various aspects to it. And then the primary part of our time on Paul's identity in Christ. Paul's challenge to these people and then his identity in Christ. So first, if you jump to the end of the text, if you go to the second half there, verse 27 and on following, you see the challenge that Paul gives these folks. It's the challenge we've chosen as the theme of the whole series, that you would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, the pursuit of a worthy life. And ultimately, this is where the rest of the book takes us. 
the worthy life that Christ gives to us and the worthy life that we, re- that we live out then in response to what Christ has given us. Regardless of whether I see you in person or whether I'm absent from you, I want to know this is my hope for you. I want to hear about your progress and your joy in the faith, verse 25. So you say, well, what does progress and joy in the faith look like? Great, great question. And that is really where the series will take us over the next seven or eight weeks that we have left in this. There are some specifics we'll get to. Uh, Chapter one, he's already talked about that you increase in your love for one another. Uh, Chapter two, he will talk about increasing in your humility. And he'll go on to say, and decreasing in your grumbling and complaining. Grow in love, grow in humility, and decrease in grumbling and complaining. And there's a lot of other themes that we could cherry pick out. But in the text that we read today, he mentions three specific things. I long to know that you're standing firm in one spirit. That you're leaning into the unity that you have been given through the Spirit of God. It's not a unity that we create. It's a unity we have been given because we have come together at the foot of the cross and the Holy Spirit has now united us through His work in our life. So stand firm in that unity that you have been given. These brothers and sisters, these brothers and sisters are truly that. They're family. You have been brought together by the Spirit of God. Secondly, I want to hear that you're striving side by side. Not only that you're maintaining unity, but that there is a palpable sense of love and goodwill. He says of the same mind, that you're thinking the same, that you're headed toward the same goal. I mean, think it through, the various personality types in the church. Here in Philippi, we've mentioned Lydia, the entrepreneurial businesswoman. She had to be a strong thinker and a a woman of decisive decision-making. You've got the Philippian jailer, Joe Blue Collar, doing the night shift security guard. Probably a little rough around the edges, probably opinionated, probably not too tactful. And then you've got the slave girl who, who would have been dealing with her own sense of insecurities and fears. How did she get into slavery? Was she sold by her parents? Does she have trust issues? And you bring all these divergent personality types together and say, now strive side by side with one mind for the sake of the gospel. The same agenda, the same goals. We're all leaning in. And thirdly, I want to hear that you're not shaken by the winds of culture around you. I want to know that you're not fearful of the times that you're living in. These are the times that have been given to you. And live with a quiet sense of confidence that even though the heat is turning up and it might even get hotter yet, the message of Christ will be opposed and yet your roots are deep. And so when the winds of culture blow against you, suffering that will make you stronger is your confidence that God is in control in this and I have nothing to fear given the times that we live in. So Paul's challenge is pretty straightforward. You have been declared worthy through Jesus Christ. Now act like it. It's important that we say that because it's not just our own pursuit of a worthy life, but it is the worthy life that we have been given through the finished work of Jesus and now we live into it. But it's worth noting a couple things about Paul's challenge if you dig a little deeper into it. The first is this, that his challenge is rooted 
and directly connected to his deep concern for these people. It's why he's challenging them. He is deeply concerned that they would persevere, that they would make progress in the faith. If you look at verse 25, I want to rejoice in the gospel's advance, and I want to rejoice that you are advancing in your faith. You've heard me say this before, that in the Christian life, there is no such thing as neutral. That if you are not moving forward, then you are drifting backwards. Because the flow and the push of our culture is constantly and always away from the things of God. It is the drift tide that will carry us away from God. And because of the fickleness and the sinfulness of our human heart, uh, we always tend towards drift or cooling off of the spiritual fire. And so if we are not making conscious steps toward the things of God, we will drift away. And it may not be a sudden rebellious moment. It may be more a slow fade over a long period of time. And it's why there are so many admonitions in the New Testament. Fan it into flame. Cultivate it. Pursue it. Train yourself for godliness. Live out a worthy life. Paul's deeply concerned that these people persevere in their faith. I can tell you from pastoral experience that nothing bothers church leaders greater than when people walk away from the faith. Not when people leave one church and go to another church per se, because that happens. People change churches for various reasons. They move to different communities, etc. but they stay in the faith. But when people abandon the faith that they once embraced, it is a heartbreaking experience. Fruitfulness and perseverance is a massive theme in the New Testament, of course. Jesus, back in Mark 4, told a story to his disciples about a farmer who goes out to scatter seed, and some of that seed falls on the hard soil of the path, some falls on rocky soil, some falls on soil that's infested with weeds, and then some falls on a fertile soil where it takes root and grows and an abundant harvest. Now, the hard path where the seed gets snatched away and the fertile soil, those are pretty straightforward. They're easy to understand. But Jesus goes on to explain the rocky and the weedy soil in this way, Mark 4, 16, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. What Jesus is saying there is that there are many people who seem to make a good start in the Christian life, and in the end, it doesn't last In the end, it doesn't endure. In the end, they don't bear fruit. In the end, they don't persevere. Just turn up the heat of persecution a little bit and they fall away. Or bring a little distraction and temptation into their life and they drift away. And so Paul's challenge is rooted in his deep concern for these people that they would persevere in their faith. The same concern that we share for one another in our local church, that as men and women of God, as boys and girls and men and women growing up in the church, that we would not just begin in the faith, but that we would persevere in the faith. 
The second aspect to Paul's challenge is that it is rooted in his confidence. So not only is deep concern, but it's also rooted in a rock-solid confidence of who God is and what he is up to, what he is doing. And make sure that you don't miss where Paul anchors his confidence. It's not in the work of human beings. It's not in the Philippians themselves, but his confidence is in God and his work. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, he, he basically says, I know that God's not done with you yet. I'm sure of this, he says, that the one who began the work will carry it on to completion. And, and so there is more progress in the faith to come in your life. God never stops working in our lives. And so that's what I'm praying for you because this is God's work. And so I'm praying that your love abounds more and more, that you grow in knowledge and discernment, that you make excellent choices, that you are pure and blameless, and that you bear incredible amounts of fruit under the glory of God. I'm sure of it, God's gonna carry out his work. But he also says he isn't done with me yet. He's not done with you, chapter one, verse six. He's not done with me, chapter one, verse 19. As long as I have breath, he has work for me to do. And I am convinced that through your prayers, the Spirit of God is going to be moved and I am going to be released from this prison. And why? Just so that I can get out of jail? Well, no, the end to which Paul would be released is that if he were to live on in the flesh, it would mean fruitful labor. Verse 22 that he would be released and he would continue to work for the glory of God. And then verse 21 is interesting. That even if he was finished, so he's not finished with you, he's not finished with me, but even if he was finished, that would be good as well. Because to die is gain. And so I will rejoice even in my death. Dig a little deeper. Dig a little deeper for a moment. The general thought that Paul is saying is, hey, I can't lose. I can't lose. If I die, I get to go and be with the Lord. The sufferings of this life are over. I am present with the Lord. I get to hear the well done, good and faithful servant. The labors of this life are wrapped up. The battle is over. That's good news. So if I die, it's great gain. On the other hand, if I live, that's also good news because it means that I've got more time to invest in kingdom work, more fruitful ministry that the Lord obviously has for me, more time to give glory to God through my life. I can't lose. Live or die, I rejoice. And so Paul's challenge to these readers and to us is that we would live out of the worthy life that we've been given in Christ rooted in his concern for them, but buoyed up by his confidence in the God that we serve. But undergirding all of that, undergirding Paul's rejoicing and his challenge is this key thought that we've got to spend some time on. It's Paul's identity in Christ. Verse 21, for sure, has to be the key thought in this particular paragraph. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, just back up in your mind. We talked about it last weekend, but into the book of Acts, the two to three years leading up to this letter being written, Paul sitting under house arrest in Rome. Remind yourself 
That is, Paul is making his way to Jerusalem and he is being told there's trouble on the horizon. Lots of warnings about what is coming down the pipe. And a couple of statements from Paul, Acts 20, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I've received. What's most important to me is not that I live or die, but that I finish the work God has given me. Uh, In chapter 21, he said, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, Paul is convinced that his life and his death are in the hands of God. And Paul then holds his own mortal life loosely. Those words are astounding when you think about the implications. What Paul is saying is simply this, that this body of mine, literally this physical house that I live in, this flesh and bones, not just my soul, not just my spirit, not just my mind, not just my inner person, not just my eternal destiny, but literally this physical body, frail or strong, this human existence is his. The Lord owns my body. And he has every right to do with it what he pleases. And so if I live a long life or a short life, I will live to please him in every day, with every breath, with every fiber of my being lived unto the glory of God for me to live as Christ. And when in God's timing, I've reached the end of my earthly life, be it short or be it long, I will rejoice because this is not the end. It is just the beginning. And to die is great gain. Now, there are two very important questions that this text pushes us to, and it's where I want to spend the rest of our time. And the first one is this. I have to ask you the question, do you fear death? Do you fear death? Do you believe what Paul believes? that to die is gain. And I'm not talking about some morbid death wish, and nor am I talking about dismissing the concerns that probably all of us have as we think about the process of dying. Death doesn't frighten us, but the path getting there somehow is frightening to us. But I do have to ask you that bigger question, do you fear death? Because if we are to understand the promises of God's word, death, has no hold over the child of God. There should be no fear because death has been defeated in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the first fruits from the grave, we're told. And our rock-solid hope is that to cross to the other side is literally to step into life as its fullest. And so like Paul, do we hold our earthly lives loosely? Not carelessly, but do we hold them loosely? And do we walk in the freedom of fear knowing that our days are ordained by the Lord? Psalm 139 is a a very famous text that talks about God's sovereign knowledge over our lives from the beginning to the end. And in verse 15 and 16 of Psalm 139, it says, "'My frame was not hidden from you "'when I was made in the secret place.'" 
When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. If you put that passage into common language, it basically says this, from the moment of conception, you watched over me in my mother's womb when I was hidden away and tucked away and before people even knew I existed, you knew that I existed, that life began at that moment of conception. And from that time forward, you watched over my being and that every day ordained for me is in your hands. All the days written for me are actually written down in a book at that moment of conception. You know my beginning to the end. God knows the air that we breathe. He knows the cars that we drive. He knows the food we eat. He knows the diseases that plague the human race. And yet God is sovereign over our lives. He knows, but he also cares, and he has a plan for us. He can, and he does often provide healing across the journey of our lives. But ultimately, and you know this, ultimately, Unless Jesus returns first, every single one of us will face our own decline and death. And for the believer, we face our lives and death with different confidence that the sovereign Lord is Lord over my days from beginning to end. And so I refuse to live in fear of that specter called death. It holds no power over me. Do you fear death? But secondly, and equally important, is the question, are you living for Christ? Because if to die is gain, and it is gain only if to live is Christ. What Paul is stressing here is that it's okay that I might die. In fact, I'd prefer that. It would mean I could go and be with the Lord. Not only am I ready, my friends, but I'm quite excited about it. But I believe that for now, I'm going to live a bit longer, and I'm excited for that as well, because if I go on living, I can give myself fully to the work of the Lord, and all I can think about is pleasing God with my life. For me to live is Christ. You might ask the question, who lives like that? Who lives like that? Was Paul just some spiritual freak of nature? Was Paul somehow this super spiritual, hyper committed person that is unlike the rest of us? People have asked that question through the centuries. John Chrysostom was a church father, a church leader back in the fourth century, and he asked that question. Uh, In his old English, it's, it's translated this way, Dost thou not, O blessed Paul, live the common life of men? Dost thou not see the sun? Dost thou not breathe the air? Dost thou not need sleep, food, clothing like ourselves? In other words, are you not a normal person, Paul? It's great that you think like that, but nobody else lives like that. I know it's true theologically for me to live as Christ, but it's really not practical. And yet in the history of the church, there have been thousands of people who have laid their lives down on the altar of living for Christ at the highest price possible to follow the Lord's leading. A couple of weeks back, I mentioned a guy named C.T. Studd, and I want to throw a couple of images up on the screen for you to see. There's, there's two images here side by side. 
Uh, there's an image of a group of men that were known as the Cambridge Seven from the late 1800s, and then there's another group of five from the 1950s in the U.S. These two groups of men and their wives and their children left everything behind, the comfort of Western life, to go overseas to take the gospel. Uh, the Cambridge Seven to join Hudson Taylor in China, taking the gospel to that great nation. And the five men, along with Jim Elliott, went to the Alka Indians in the jungles of Ecuador. Jim Elliott and his buddies were martyred on the beach outside the village where they were trying to reach these people for the gospel. These men and their wives and their children paid the ultimate cost. If you have not heard this story, you need to hear this story. Uh, it's in book form. You can read it. And if you don't read books, watch the movie. It was put into a movie form, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. Beyond the Gates of Splendor. Look it up. You can find it. It's a challenging story of these men, their wives, and their children. And if you ask their widows, was it worth it? Was the price that you paid in having your husband killed as a missionary, was it worth it? And the resounding answer is yes and amen, it was worth it. Even today, there are many families in our congregations who have children who are serving God overseas. And we know full well the price of being away from our kids and our grandkids. We know full well the distance and the reality that particularly these little grandchildren will not grow up knowing grandma and grandpa or knowing their cousins or having the same memories as family members who live in a tight-knit community close to home. And some of you might be thinking right now, well, that's all well and good for people who are called into vocational ministry, called to go work in nonprofits and missions and Christian education and in the church. But what about the majority of us who have real jobs? I'm sure somebody's thinking that right now. And I'm glad you asked the question. Because it might be the greatest need in the church today for both pastors and congregants to understand that all of us are in full-time Christian ministry. Our paychecks come from the exact same source. They come from God himself. It doesn't matter who signs that paycheck. It doesn't matter what company's name is on the name of the check. Ultimately, it is God who gives us the ability to live and breathe and to amass wealth, the Old Testament tells us. The ability to work and earn money comes from God. Your paycheck comes from God. You need to know this. And I have a conviction about a text that I think has been highly misunderstood and misapplied over the years. It's Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So he gives leaders to the church to equip the saints to do the ministry. So the leaders aren't supposed to do the ministry. They're supposed to equip the saints to do the ministry. And I think what's happened is that we have dumbed that verse down. And we have stripped that verse of its power. You see, we have shrunk down, equipped the saints for the works of ministry to mean that we've got to raise up Sunday school teachers and Bible study leaders and community group, care group leaders. And we need folks to serve on the food teams, coffee service, usher teams, greeter teams. Let's equip you to be a youth sponsor or can we get you to play on a worship team and use your musical talents? And you know what? All those things are important. 
They are wonderful and they are necessary and we should as a church lean in together side by side and give of our volunteer time and our effort and use the talents and abilities God has given us. But if ministry, the works of ministry, are only what happens inside the walls of the church, then what about the majority of your life that is spent out in the marketplace, in the school, in the neighborhood, the other 165 hours of the week that you're not gathered with the people of God? You see, the hour or two that we spend together in services on the weekend or in a community group is to equip us and to strengthen us for the real work when we walk out the doors, our gatherings are simply pep rallies to equip us up and prop us up again for the real work of our ministry. I said, Dwight Moody was famous for this saying. He was an evangelist 100 years ago, a bit like Billy Graham, to say this, the world is yet to see what God could accomplish through one life fully devoted to his glory. By God's grace, I want to be that person. The world is yet to see what God could do through one life fully devoted to his glory. And by his grace, I want to be that person. So what say you, school teacher? What say you, business owner? What say you, contractor or trades person? What about financial planners and doctors and engineers? What say you baristas and students and artists? That your primary motivation in all you do is unto the glory of God? Can you truly say for me to live is Christ? Because Paul's choice of life over death, choosing to live a little bit longer, wasn't so that he could finish off his bucket list. He didn't say, I want to go on living so that I can travel the world. I want to go on living so I can make a little money. I want to go on living so I can have a family. Lord, let me live long enough that I can see my kids grow up. Lord, some will say, let me live long enough so I can get married. I want to have sex before I die. It wasn't on his bucket list. It was this, I want to live unto God's glory. When asked the question, what's your ministry? What have you answered? My ministry is doing business under the glory of God. My ministry is building homes under the glory of God. My ministry is engineering widgets or flipping burgers or changing flat tires unto the glory of God. It's a massive topic. And it's one that we've got to come back to at some point in time. But I have a good friend who's fond of saying lately that he thinks the future of evangelism in North America is actually going to be driven by marketplace leaders. Because it is these men and women who actually have the contacts with the majority of people outside the church who will never darken the door of a church. R.J. Letourneau might be a name that you've heard or more than likely you've probably not heard. He died over 50 years ago. He was one of the richest men in U.S. history. He dropped out of school in grade eight, and he worked his way up through the ranks of the road construction industry. And finally, as a young adult, he found his niche in designing and building heavy-duty, earth-moving machines. He started a company in the midst of the Great Depression. He started out poor, and he became incredibly wealthy, and he was also a Christian. And if you're in business, I would encourage you, if you've not heard his story, if you've not read his biography or autobiography, pick up one of these books and read his story. 
He got his business started in those dark years of the depression and he started making money really fast, even in the midst of the depression. And he and his wife made a strategic decision early on that this was the Lord's business. It was the Lord who gave them the ability to make money and it was the Lord who was their primary business partner. In fact, he was famous for saying, the Lord owns my company. And so what do we do with the company's money? And they, to make a long story short, decided that they would cap their lifestyle at a certain level and that they would give away as much as they possibly could unto the work of the kingdom. And eventually they were giving away 90% of their income. And within 25 years of making that decision, they had given away over $50 million. $50 million. Now you might say, what's my point? Good question. My point is this. Paul was not the only freak of nature to live for the glory of Christ. There are people today who live like this. There have always been. But who are they today? Who are the business leaders and the moms and dads and the teachers? Uh, you see, I pray a lot about the next generation of pastors and church planters and missionaries because our eye is always on that as a local church. Who's the next generation that is going to take the reins in church leadership? There's always a dearth of godly leaders for the many open positions around the world. But I've also been wondering about the godly men and women that will teach in universities and in public schools and who will do business with an eye to the glory of God, who will do the ordinary things of life, who will get married and make babies and build houses and pay their bills, but do it all unto the glory of God for me to live is Christ. Where are these God-fearing people going to come from? Can we really say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? And I think one of the greatest leaders are those who call out the best in others. The coach, the teacher, the politician, the parent, the friend. Like Rene Magritte's painting, looking at the lives of others and seeing what God has put within them and then calling it out, painting for them the future of what you see by God's grace in their life. So we've got to wrap it up, obviously. But let me give you two things to ponder this week, to just take these thoughts with you and perhaps to take some action. The first is this. Is there somebody in your life in whom you have seen God at work. They have gifts and abilities and potential that they may not even know about yet. They are unaware, but you can see it. You can see how their lives could bring glory to God. You see their talents, their abilities, their personality type. You see their heart. Could I suggest to you that you find a time and a place to encourage them. Write them a note, buy them a cup of coffee, tap them on the shoulder and have a conversation. I'm sure there are hundreds of men and women in our congregation who could tell about these experiences in your life when you were younger and someone tapped you on the shoulder and said, have you considered what God is doing in your life? Can we do that for one another? Secondly, 
Do you need to have a talk with that person who looks back at you in the mirror every morning? Is it time for you to have an honest conversation about who you are living for? To ask that person staring back at you in the mirror, for whom am I living? Is it for the glory of Christ? Can you truly say, for me to live is Christ? Because one thing I know for certain is this, that if you're hearing this message, then God is not done with you yet. As long as you have breath in your lungs, the Spirit of God will keep doing His work in you. What God has started in you, He has plans to bring it to completion. And if you are in Christ, you have been made worthy, and your calling is to live that truth out in your daily lives. And as we do, it will be for our progress and our joy in the faith, and there will be a lot of rejoicing for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I pray for the men and women hearing this message, and I pray particularly for those who know in their heart of hearts that you have not called them into professional so-called Christian ministry inside the church, but you have called them to do their ministry out in the marketplace, out in the schools, out in the neighborhoods. And Lord God, I pray that you would call out of the men and women that are listening to this message a deep, deep conviction that how I live my life will be lived under the glory of Christ so that whether a long life or a short life is ahead of me, that I can truly say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, seal that truth into our lives by your Spirit. And then may we rejoice as we see the progress, the advance of the gospel in our lives. I ask that blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.